This morning, uh, we are returning to our study of the pre-reformer, John Wycliffe. Last week, we were introduced to him and to his work, and today we're looking again. But this time, we're going to look at his greatest work. I believe his greatest work was the translation of the Bible from Latin to English. You know, I was thinking about translations and thinking about how many languages the Bible has been translated in. And as I was studying, I began to look into this, and I discovered that as of 2020, so this is two years old, that there have been translated the Bible into 704 different languages. But the languages, obviously, of the people, not stuck in one language, but all these different languages. And the New Testament itself had been translated into an additional 1,551 languages. Even portions or stories from the Bible have been translated into 1,160 languages and some even into 3,415 languages. Now, I read that and I read it to you and maybe you'll have the first thought that I had when I read it and that is that this fulfilled the desire and the passion of the reformers. Isn't this what they wanted? They wanted the Bible in the language of the people. And if I handed you a Bible in a language that you didn't speak, it wouldn't mean anything to you, would it? You would have to have someone tell you what it says that spoke that language. And hence, here we are. This is where we were at. With the Roman Catholic Church controlling everything and having a dominant influence in every person's life, as well as in the government, they told you what to believe. Who is supposed to tell you what to believe? God is. His word is. But in those days, it was the church. The problem with that is the church got it completely wrong. They were telling them things that were not taught in the scriptures. And that's one of the reasons why that the Roman Catholic Church rebelled against a Bible in the language of the people. Because the moment that that happened, they would now be held accountable for what they taught. It's much easier. And easier to get away with things if the people don't understand. And so God has given us John Wycliffe, among many others, to bring about this change. And what a change it was. In fact, John Wycliffe was the first person to translate the Bible into English. The first occurred, that is the New Testament, in 1380, and then the Old Testament was in 1382. And here's what Wycliffe had to say about this. I quote, he said, Holy Scripture is the preeminent authority for every Christian. And the rule of faith and of all human perfection. So it's the scripture that's where we find the authority of God. And it's also in scripture where we find the rule of faith. And what God calls us to in walking by faith and not by sight. 
He also said, and I quote, Christ and his apostles taught the people in the language best known to them. It is certain that the truth of the Christian faith becomes more evident the more faith itself is known. Therefore, the doctrine should not only be in Latin, but in the vulgar tongue. And as the faith of the church is contained in the scriptures, the more these are known in a true sense, the better. The laity ought to understand the faith. And as doctrines of our faith are in the scriptures... Believers should have the scriptures in a language which they fully understand, end quote. In another place, he said this, Englishmen learn Christ's law best in English. Moses had God's law in his own tongue, as did Christ's apostles. This was his heart. This was his passion. And this would be your heart, and this would be your passion if you carried the same view that he had of Scripture. He had such a high view of Scripture, and he thought and lived the gospel constantly so that when he wasn't with God's people, he was with the lost, sharing the gospel. The best way that anyone could know the Bible would be to have it in your language. And according to the Roman Catholic Church, translating the Bible into the vulgar common language was a heresy punishable by death. But you know what? That didn't stop Wycliffe. As I said, by 1382, the entire Bible was translated from the Latin Vulgate into English. And since there were no printing presses at the time, it had to be done by hand. It was translated by hand, and then it was copied by hand, and it would take approximately a year to do this. Four years after Wycliffe died, his friend John Purvey had revised his translation. But when you think about his work, which was begun by Wycliffe, this was really preparing the way for other reformers. For example, William Tyndall. And the only two people to put the Bible in English was John Wycliffe and William Tyndall. This was also a preparation for the translators of the Geneva Bible, as well as the authorized version, the 1611. In fact, there still exist today about 150 manuscripts. Some are complete, some are partial, and they, they contain Wycliffe's translation in his revised form. And so you can take from this that really how widely distributed it was in the 15th century to the fact that we still would have copies. In fact, it's for this reason that the Wycliffe's in England were often designated by their opponents as Bible men. I wouldn't have a problem being called that, would you? Now, last time we saw the problem that Wycliffe had with the Roman church's teaching on transubstantiation, and that's basically where in the Lord's Supper they believe that the bread and the wine literally become the body and the blood of Christ, even though the elements themselves remain still bread and wine. And, of course, Wycliffe rejected this idea. He stated this is not taught in the Scriptures, 
And so last time, we looked at what the Scriptures had to say about the Lord's Supper. And now there were other things he spoke out against. For example, he spoke out against monasticism, and monasticism basically is not taught in the Scriptures either. And he believed the Bible never suggested that, nor that it ever suggested that Christians should purposely seek out discomfort or pain because that's what was found in monasticism. In fact, the Bible warns of those who, according to 1 Timothy 4.3, who forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods. And if you were of the monastic order, you would take a vow of celibacy. And you have to understand this, being celibate does not make you more holy than other people. They may have thought that, But monasticism actually ignores the responsibility to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. And you know, the church was never intended to be isolated from people in need of Christ. So he spoke out against that. He also spoke out against the indulgences. And this is where the Roman Catholic Church believed that making a payment or atoning for one's sins. They taught, and I quote, that financial contributions to the church could ensure that a person who had died could be released from purgatory into heavenly bliss. And so he rejected that as well. And you would have to reject it too because you would find that it's not in the Bible. We are not to go around and sell salvation. The cost was enormous with what Jesus did and going to the cross, and providing redemption. But you and I cannot sell that. Freely we have received it, freely we are to give it. And yes, it may cost you your life in doing that. Wycliffe also rejected the teaching of purgatory. And purgatory was really what the Roman Catholic Church taught about the afterlife. They believed that that was a place of torment, but you could be prayed out of that or someone could buy your way out of that. You would be purged and ready for heaven. And we actually hear 150 later, 150 years later, Tetzel, who said to the villagers, and I quote, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs, end quote. Now again, if, if the Bible was in the language of the people, the church would have never got away with this. But I believe that his biggest trouble came from his rejection of papal authority. See, the Pope believed that he was the successor from the Apostle Peter, that he was given the keys to the church. And what he said went. In fact, if you ever heard the phrase ex cathedra, when he would speak ex cathedra, he was speaking as if he was speaking for God. And it could not be changed and it could not be altered. And if you came out against it, it could be your own head. The Roman Catholic Church taught that the Pope was the supreme leader of the church and he controls what the church teaches. And I would just have to add to that, in John's day, 
He controlled the government as well. Now, the Bible doesn't teach any of these doctrines that the Roman Catholic Church taught then or still today. In fact, many of the teachings still go on now. And did you know that years before the Roman Catholic Church pronounced an anathema against the Protestant Church, and yet to this day that's never been lifted? And yet there are different things that are going on today that try to put us together with Roman Catholics so that we can tackle the culture you know the problem with that is? This was the problem with the ECT document, the evangel- Evangelicals and Catholics together. You know what the problem was that? Years ago when that document came down, and a lot of Evangelicals were signing that, as it was confusing. Because Rome taught salvation plus the church. Protestants teach salvation in Christ alone. So you can see where the problem is, and, and accepting the Roman Catholic Church would be also accepting their teaching. And so there were many who refused to sign that. Now, Wycliffe addressed many other things. In fact, there are 15 works that he had completed that were addressing other problems. But I'll tell you that his greatest work is what's on the screen behind me, and that's the Wycliffe Bible. That was his greatest work. And you know why it was that? Because he recognized that it was the Bible that had authority, not the Pope, not the Cardinals, not the Friars. It's the Bible. This is where we get our understanding of faith and practice. This is where we get our understanding of God and what He requires of us. We don't get it from somewhere else. We get it from here. and This is where it's dictated in our life. And God is authoritative. And his word is authoritative, not the Pope. Wycliffe believed, as well as all the pre-reformers and reformers, that the Bible taught from itself that it is the word of God. In fact, it's called that. In James 1.21, it's called the word Luke eleven twenty eight is called the Word of God. In Colossians three sixteen, it's called the Word of Christ. In James one eighteen, it's called the Word of Truth. In Second Timothy two fifteen, it is called the Holy Scriptures. In Daniel ten twenty one, it's called the Scripture of Truth. In Revelation twenty two nineteen, it's called the Book. Isaiah thirty four sixteen, the Book of the Lord. Nehemiah 8.3, the book of the law. Psalm 1.2, the law of the Lord. Ephesians 6.17, the sword of the Spirit. And Romans 3.2, the oracles of God. And because it's God's word, it is infallible. And infallibility means that it makes no mistakes in its entirety. It's perfect. Psalm 19.7, the law of the Lord is perfect. And not only is it perfect, but it's true. It is absolute truth. We're told in John 17.17, Jesus says this, Your word is truth. The psalmist even declared it that way. Psalm 119.151, all your commandments are truth. Psalm 119, 160, the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. 
makes no mistakes as a whole. It also makes no mistake in its parts. It's inerrant. Proverbs 30 and verse 5 says it this way, every word of God is pure. Every word. And listen, if every word of God is pure and every word is God's, then why don't we study it expositionally? Because that's what exposition deals with. It deals with every word. We're told in Psalm 12, 6, it's been tested. It's been found out to be pure words. It says the words of the Lord are pure words, a silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. One commentator says this, What a contrast between the vain words of men and the pure words of God. While the words of men are vanity, the words of God are purity. While men speak with flattering lips, God speaks with tested lips. The words of God and the word of God have passed through the furnace of persecution and philosophical disputation, scientific reasoning, and literary criticism, but they have not lost one precious ounce of their purity. God preserves and keeps those who are opposed and needy because he keeps his word. Even when the wicked walk on every side as a result of vile men being in positions of authority, we may still trust the word of God, knowing that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Romans 8.28, end quote. The word of God is infallible. It's inerrant. It's also complete. You don't need to add anything to it. Proverbs 30 verse 6 says, Do not add to his words or he will reprove you and you'll be found to be a liar. Try to add to the word of God or you try to take it away from it. That's problematic too. Revelation 22, 18 and 19 says, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in the book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. So there's a warning associated with that. And if it's complete, you don't need to add to it. If it's perfect, you don't need to do anything to it. The message of the Bible is complete. It needs no collaboration from anyone. Not only is it infallible and inerrant and complete, but it's also effective. It does exactly what it says it will do. It's not like some things that we read. We buy a product or we see it on TV. We see some kind of advertisement for it, and it says, if you get this thing, this will change your life. This will do this, this, and this, and this. You get it, you find out it doesn't do anything it says it's going to do, and you just wasted all this money on it. And now you're looking for a way to send it back. And if you bought it through Amazon, they have one of the best return policies, and boom, it goes right back to them. That's the way I do it anyway. But that's the way it kind of works out. You know, we look at things for the effectiveness of it. And, you know, the Bible is effective. It does exactly what God sent it to do. Here's your verse for that. Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11 says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bear and sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater... God says, so will my word be, which goes forth from my mouth. It will, will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. And listen, if it didn't accomplish what he sent it to do, then he wouldn't be sovereign, right? 
The Bible's going to do in your life exactly what it says it will do. When God says that you can be saved from your sin, that you can have an eternal home in heaven prepared for you, that's exactly what it means, and you can trust His Word. See, that's the whole issue right there anyway. When we talk about the Word of God, we want to know, do we have a reliable text? Do we have a trustworthy text? And we do. I find it a very amazing as I study this from history and look at the dedication of these men and their, their scholarliness as well. William Tindo, I think he knew eight languages fluently. And plus he was schooled in Hebrew and Greek. One of the things that John Wycliffe did not have was Hebrew and Greek. He did not know Hebrew or Greek or even Aramaic. But he did know Latin. And that's what the Bible was translated in. Translated in Latin. And so his idea was to take the Latin that he knew and translate that to English and give that to the English-speaking people. Same passion, same desire that William Tyndall had. And as I said, this paved the way for the reformers. And we can thank God every day for these men because what you hold in your hand is their work. Many people don't realize that the King James Bible, 70% of the work is Tyndall's work. 70%. That's amazing from one person. Normally we have teams of people that do this, but one person, 70%. In fact, when the revision came to Wycliffe's Bible, it needed to come because of the type of English that he used at the time. And when John Purvey had translated it again or revised it, he brought it into more of the English vernacular that the people was more common to speak. Not to say that Wycliffe didn't do that. It's just that English keeps changing, does it not? Isn't it one of the most frustrating languages? It changes constantly. But I'm thankful God's Word never changes. And people ask me, you know, what Bible version do you use? Well, you know, that's really not the question. The question is, do you know Hebrew or Greek? The question is, do you study Hebrew or Greek? That's the question. Because that's what you're looking at when you study it. Yes, we look at the English. We look at the language that we speak, and we use English dictionaries to help us define the English language, but we've got to go past all of that and go back to the original languages. It's also sufficient. Scripture is sufficient. It's able to meet all your needs. And what are some of your needs? Well, it's sufficient for salvation. Timothy had learned from a child, from childhood, about salvation. It says in 2 Timothy 3.15, and that from childhood you've known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. The sacred writings, the graphe. In the next verse, verse 16, it talks about the Scripture being inspired and profitable for teaching. And here it's telling us in that verse that this literally is God's Word, and it literally came from God. He breathed it out, is the way it's translated in the ESV. And it's profitable, it's useful. For what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, 
for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And listen, if you're dealing with authority, you can't get away from that passage. Because if this is God's word, and it is, then it's authoritative. What he says, he wants us to do. And what he wants us to do, he enables us to do it. Because we have his spirit. You're not left alone to try to figure this out. You're not left alone to try to live this life on your own. In fact, God does not want you to live it that way. He wants you to live in complete dependence on him. And that takes a series of things happening in your life to bring you to that place where you're completely dependent upon Him. Hence, this is why we have trials and persecutions and all these very uncomfortable things that happen in our life. Because every time we go through things like that, what's it strip away? Our dependence on ourselves, and it puts our dependence where it should be, on Christ. But the Bible is sufficient. It's sufficient to tell you what you need to be saved. It's sufficient to tell you the gospel. It's sufficient to explain to you who Christ is. It's sufficient to explain to you the whole purpose of the cross and the whole purpose of why you need to be forgiven of all your sin and how that's only possible in Christ. It's also useful for maturity, to grow you. You know, once you're saved and you now have a new awareness of the things of God, and your eyes and heart have been opened up to the life of God, and also to the Word of God, this becomes your lifeline. That every day you have an opportunity to commune with the living God through His living Word. This is what God has left us to do that with. And it's unfortunate that we have some people running around saying, God said to me, and God said that, and God said this. Listen, I don't want to hear any of that. What I want to hear is if it says, God said to me, show me verse number and reference, and then I'll understand what God said. And then I have to study that within its context to understand if it even applied to you or to me. This is why we have to go beyond reading the Scripture. We have to study the Scripture because some things aren't quite apparent. We were talking about Ephesians 5.18 in our FOF class this morning, and one of the things I was pointing out that you do not see in the English is that the word filled is in the passive voice. You have no way to know if it's active, passive, or middle until you look at the Greek. And when you look at the Greek, it will tell you. You have no way to know if it's a command unless it's spelled out that it's a command. But I'll tell you, in the English translation of Ephesians 5.18, which says this, and be not drunk with wine, in which is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. You have nowhere in that passage it tells you it's a command or to tell you that the word filled is passive until you look at the Greek text. And when you look at the Greek text, you find out that you are commanded to be filled with the Spirit. Not only that, you're commanded to do something you can't do. Because it's passive, the Holy Spirit has to fill you. You don't fill yourself. And so you've got to go beyond just reading it. You've got to study it. Ask questions and go find the answers. Look at the terms. Again, I, I'm committed to expository preaching. I believe in words. Words have meaning. And I'll tell you, they do have meaning. You, you get on the next plane you're on, and you make yourself a little note that says, take me somewhere else, and you hand it to the flight attendant. 
they're going to return probably back to the airport, probably have an air marshal on to arrest you because you have just given a threat that you're hijacking this plane to take you somewhere else than it's intending to go. We believe in words, don't we? Over 3,000 people killed on 9-11 when two planes flew into the towers, the Twin Towers. We believe words, don't we? And that's why it's so disturbing to see what our current government is doing because we hear what they're saying. And we're watching their actions to back up what they're saying. And they believe what they are saying. And what they are saying is against God, it's against Christ, it's against His Word, and it's against you and me. So the Scripture is sufficient to teach us. It's also sufficient to give us hope. It tells us in Romans 15.4 that whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. And so if it was written in earlier times for our instruction, then we need to be in it so that we can be instructed, right? It's also sufficient for blessing. James 1.25 says, But one who looks intently at the perfect law the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. If you look at the Word of God and you obey it, you do it, that's going to bring blessing from God. But equally, if you are disobedient, and as a child of God, when I am disobedient, the Bible teaches in Hebrews chapter 12 that I am subject to His discipline. I call it the divine spanking. How do we approach God? He is, according to Matthew 6, 9, our Father, right? And so as a Father, He tends to us as a Father. And last, I would say that the Word of God is living and powerful. Hebrews 4, 12 says, For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is a living and active word. And you know that, don't you? And every day you spend in it, you understand that. His word does speak to your heart. His word does instruct you and teach you and show you how to have a right relationship with God and how to walk with God like Enoch did, who walked with God and all of a sudden he was no longer around because he just kept walking with God and God took him. What fellowship. So since the Bible is God's word, it's also God's final word. It's his final word. It's authoritative. It's the Word of God that is to be obeyed. And there are several ways that we can look at this and see that it's the final Word. Uh, one of the ways that I was thinking about was from fulfilled prophecy. Did you know that there are 333 prophecies about Christ in the Old and New Testament? Did you know that when He came the first time, He fulfilled 109 of them? Leaving now when he comes back, he will fulfill 224? What's the probability of one coming to pass? 
probably have shared this illustration with you, and I don't mind sharing it again because it's very good. The probability of fulfilling one would be like taking a silver dollar, putting an X on it, covering the entire state of Texas with silver dollars, and then blindfolding one of you and saying, go find the one with the X on it in the entire state. What's the probability of finding it? There is no probability of finding it, unless it's right in front of you, right? But the fact is, he fulfilled 109. And he's going to fulfill 224. And the fact that he fulfilled any prophecy is pointing out the fact that he is the final word. And what he says comes to pass. We also see this as witnessed by the apostles. You know, I mentioned this verse a moment ago, but it's written by Paul. 2 Timothy 3.16, which says, All Scripture is given by God, or all Scripture is inspired by God, or theos panoustos, if you want to say it that way, which basically is Greek for saying that it is breathed out. Both verses 15 and 16 point out to us that all Scripture, both Old and New Testament, are the words of God. Peter came to that same understanding too. And when he wrote in his letter, his second letter, 2 Peter 3, he tells them in verse 14 to, since you look for these things, be diligent, be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they also do the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. And here, Peter is referring back to the 13 epistles by Paul, and he is saying that every one of them is scripture. And you've got false teachers who come along, and they twist it to their own destruction because they don't understand the scripture. And boy, aren't we seeing that? Some of the off-the-wall stuff that comes out of the mouths of false teachers. And they're supposed to be the representatives of God and supposed to be speaking for God and listen to the utter blasphemy coming out of their mouth. And the utter, bla uh, the utter blasphemy that comes from that entire movement. I said this in FOF class earlier too. You know, you got a guy that went on TV. He supposedly died and came back. And uh, he wanted to report to everybody that there were no toilets in heaven. That's what he wants to tell us. If you died and went to heaven, is that, would that be what you want to say? Would that be what you want to tell everybody? That there's no toilets in heaven? It's, it's that kind of stupid foolishness that needs to be eradicated from life. Yeah, I'm pretty bowled over by statements like that. It's just... Because, you know, we come along after hearing stuff like that, and we end up having to unscramble an egg. Have you ever tried to unscramble an egg? You can't. All you can do is cook it. Deal with it. But Peter believed that Scripture and the writings of Paul were the same as the writings of the Old Testament. In fact, if you were to go into 1 Timothy 5 you would find in 1 Timothy 5, Paul quotes both Luke and Moses. He puts them on an even plane, showing us that Luke's writing 
is the same as the Old Testament writing. It's Scripture. The writer of Hebrews, and we just read this verse, how did he start Hebrews 4.12? For the Word of God. You don't start that way if you don't believe it's the Word, if you don't believe it came from God. Daniel, when he wrote in Daniel 2, verse 20 and following, he made this statement. He said, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belongs to him. It is he who changes the times and the epochs or seasons. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. That sounds like a sovereign God to me. How about you? And if he's a sovereign God in control of these things, then everything he said is with authority. And basically, when we're talking about the authority of Scripture, that's what we're saying. We're saying, what does God say, and what does it mean when He said it, and how does it apply to my life right now? And what I see and what I understand, I am then enabled to apply it by His Spirit and be obedient to it. Listen, this is what marks a true child of God versus a false professor of Christ, and that is a life of obedience. What's the consistency in his life? Is it obedience to the Word of God, or is it disobedience? And just to add to what I just read, Daniel 4.17 says, The Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind. He's the ruler. So you look at all the mess that's going on in our world today, and I'll tell you right now, God is on His throne, and God is working His purposes, and God is sovereign, and He does things in His time, not in ours. We just get that in our head. We also hear Jesus speaking of the authority of the Scripture. It tells us in John 12, 49, that he only spoke what God the Father told him to speak. He says, For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. Everything that he said was what the Father told him to say. And in John 19, 11, he told Pilate this, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. Why? Because God is the only one who possesses this authority. The authority that leadership has only has it because God gave it to them. That's it. And then, of course, when we look at God himself... And we look at the descriptions that we find in the Bible about him. We look at his titles and we learn again that he is the sovereign who is in full authority. For example, we're told in Genesis 1.1 that he's the creator of all things. We're told that the titles Lord and God Almighty demonstrate his authority and his power over all things. We're even told that it's his nature which is expressed by his attributes, affirm his authority. And what are we saying by that? Well, we're saying like 1 Timothy 1.17, it tells us that he is eternal, 
He is immortal, and He is the only God. We're told in like Psalm 139, He's omniscient, which means He's all-knowing. We're told in Psalm 135, He's omnipotent, which means He is all-powerful. We're told in Psalm 139 also that He is omnipresent, which means He's present everywhere at the same time. We're told in Psalm 92.15, He is righteous. We're told in Romans 11.33, His wisdom is unsearchable. We're told in Psalm 89.11 that His sovereignty is over all of His creation. God is in control. And His word is the final word. Do you believe that? Do you believe this is the Word of God? If I spent a day with you, would I be able to know if that's what you believe? If somebody else spent a day with you, would they know that the Word of God is the authoritative truth in your life? Would they see that? Because how are you going to see it? And see how you react to it. Are you obedient? Are you living for Christ? It's very clear in the Bible that what marks a believer and an unbeliever is that a believer lives for Christ. An unbeliever lives for self and Satan. Let me have you to go to 1 John chapter 3 for just a moment. 1 John chapter 3. There's a passage in 1 John chapter 3 in verse 10 that gives us this understanding when it says, By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. How? Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. If you don't practice righteousness and you don't love your brother, you are a child of the devil. So it says... The key to this understanding of this chapter is understanding the word practice. Do you practice sin or do you practice righteousness? This is what divides us from the world. But if you're buying into everything the world is throwing at you and you're you're accepting it and you're not speaking out against it like the reformers did, then we can't see a difference in your life. We can't see the change in your life that marks the fact that you are righteous because God made you righteous. And you're walking in that righteousness that He gave you. So again, we talk about this authority. You know, God has conveyed to man through His Word an authoritative message. And it's somewhat what I just said, but let me let you hear it. Deuteronomy 4, verses 1 and 2 says this, Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I am teaching you to perform, so that you may live and go in and take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. And if... If he is the sovereign authority, then you better obey him. Right? 
Isaiah 1-2, Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. This parallels Deuteronomy 32-1, Give ear, O heavens, and let them speak. Or let me speak and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. So beloved, we see in God Himself through His titles, through His descriptions, through His nature, through His message, that He is the final word. And how are we to respond? And really we find out whether you believe this or not based upon how you respond. And even though you may have the right response initially, it may not be always the right response. For example, we see this in Exodus 20. If you want to turn there, you can. But if not, I want to just point out a few passages. And in Exodus 20, this is where you have the giving of the Ten Commandments. God gave the people instruction to be prepared when God would meet them on the mountain. And he gave them a series of things that they had to do. They had to wash themselves. They had to clean their clothes. They couldn't come to the mountain and touch it. No animal or beast was to touch the mountain. It would be put to death. And so when God called Moses up and God spoke, what did they hear? What did they witness? Thunders? Lightning flashes? They heard the loud and long sound of the trumpet that was blown because they would use a trumpet to draw them together. But it says here in Exodus 20, beginning at verse 18, all the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and they stood at a distance. And then they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of Him may remain with you so that you may not sin. Here we go. If you really believe, you really affirm the authority of Scripture, it's going to be seen in this way. The last part of that verse, so that you may not sin. Am I saying that sin is eradicated from your life now as a Christian? No way I would say that. You have the flesh. Romans 7 reminds us that we have the flesh. Paul cried out in Romans 7, O wretched man who shall deliver me from this body of death. And the idea was you had a corpse that was attached to a prisoner. The body of death was attached to the prisoner and how the prisoner would eventually die would be based upon all that broke down from the corpse touching your body. Paul says, who's going to deliver me from this body of death that I carry around with me all the time? Things I want to do, I don't do. Things I don't want to do, I end up doing. Oh, wretched man that I am. And all I can say is amen. I'm a wretched man too. Over in 1 John 2, you see the same pattern in verse 3. 
He says, by this we know that we have come to know Him. How? If we keep His commandments. The one who says, I have come to know Him and does not keep His commandments is what? A liar. And the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His word, now we're told what the commandments are, His word, in Him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in Him. This is a verse of assurance. You want to know if you're a Christian? Do you obey the commandments? Do you obey God's word? Because if you don't, and you say you do, you're a liar. One way to think about the authority of God's word is to look at the outworking of God's authority in Scripture. It can really be summarized by a series of negatives, that is what it's not, as well as positives, and that's what it is. So let me give you some statements that would give this. Number one, it's not derived authority bestowed by humans. Rather, it is the original authority of God. When we talk about the authority of God, He didn't derive it from the creation. This is who He is. It's like, again, we talk about where does God come from? God's always been. God has no beginning. He has no end. He's always been, and He always will be. And beloved, you're going to spend eternity in one of two places, heaven or hell. There's no purgatory. There's no in-between. There's no holding place so that you can go through a amount of purging, and then therefore someone would pay for you to get out of that place. It's either heaven or hell. And it's based upon how you respond to God and His Word. God tells us to confess Jesus as Lord. The Bible tells us to believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead. The Bible tells us to receive Him. The Bible tells us to believe in Him. The Bible tells us to call upon His name. This is not derived authority. Number two, it does not change with the times, the culture, the nation, or the ethnic background. Rather, it is unalterable authority of God. God's authority remains the same. It doesn't change. It doesn't get blown here and there based upon the culture, the tides, and the seasons, and what's going on in our world. It doesn't change. It's like when we talk about the very nature of God. God says Himself, I am the Lord and I do not change. Or Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever, never changes. Number three, it's not one authority among many possible spiritual authorities. Rather, it is the exclusive spiritual authority of God. See, that's what we're talking about. Any kind of authority that any of us have, it's derived from God. God doesn't get His authority from anywhere else. Number four, it's not an authority that can be successfully challenged or rightfully overthrown. Rather, it is the permanent authority of God. You can't overthrow God. Satan tried to do that, didn't he? 
You read Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. He tried. God cast him out of heaven. Matthew 25 tells us that God pre prepared hell for the devil and his angels. That's where it got him. Number five, it's not a relativistic or subordinate authority. Rather, it is the ultimate authority of God. God does not submit himself to anyone so that he might derive authority from them. We derive authority from him. Number six, it's not merely a suggestive authority. Rather, it is an obligatory authority. Number seven, it's not a benign authority in its outcome. Rather, it is the consequential authority of God. So the Bible says in Romans 13, 1, every person is to be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. So no matter who you see in authority, that authority came from God, even in wicked rulers. You know, Wycliffe was so committed to the Bible and the gospel that he wanted to make sure it, it spread. So he sent out itinerant preachers. They were called the Lorlards, or Lorlards, however you say it. Low Lords, that's the way I would say it. He sent them all throughout England to bring to the common people the word of God and the message of salvation in Christ. And see, that's what you can do when you have a Bible in your own language. And the people can read it and people can hear it. People can understand it. Our response to the authority of God's word is to, same as theirs, believe it and obey it. What God says is true. Let God be true and every man a liar. See, the Roman Catholic Church refused to do this. Instead, they, they used God's word to lord over God's people. And so they hid the gospel from the people. And everything that they did was for their own personal gain. And finally, the people revolted. And God raised up men to oppose the church and to teach the truth. And this certainly cost them dearly. They suffered persecution. They suffered excommunication. And eventually, they suffered death. They wanted to kill Wycliffe, but they weren't able. Wycliffe died after his second stroke. That's how he died. William Tyndall, a little different. They caught him. And before they could burn him, they strangled him, so he actually died of strangulation. But his body was burned. Jan Hus burned. And it's interesting, too, with the different kings that were the kings of England at that time. You would have one that would affirm Scripture. You would have one that would come as a successor that would not and persecute the believers. And then you would have a brother or sister come along that would become king or queen. And then they would affirm Scripture. And then another one would come along related to the others that would persecute, didn't believe the Scripture. I mean, aren't you thankful for the dedication and the commitment that these people gave themselves to? And the commitment that they gave to put the language of the Bible 
into our language. So as I say, now that we have it in our language, what are we doing with it? Do you read it? Do you read it consistently? Do you try to read it daily? I know sometimes it's impossible. But there can be a consistency. You know, we spend a lot of time doing other things that if we were to evaluate that compared to our time in Scripture, we'd find out those other things are totally meaningless. We waste a lot of time. But the most important is, are you living it? Is it the rule of your life? And do people see this in your life? I want to close with this from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, it's either this book or else it's ultimately the authority of the Church of Rome and her tradition. That was the great issue of the Protestant Reformation. It was because of what they found in the Bible that those men stood up against and queried and questioned and finally condemned the Church of Rome. It was that alone that enabled Luther to stand, just one man defying all those 12 centuries of tradition. I can do no other, he says, because of what he found in the Bible. He could see that Rome was wrong. It did not matter that he was alone and that all the big battalions were against him. He had the authority of the Word of God and he judged the church and her tradition and all else by this external authority. Same is true for us. That's the only way we can judge things. Anything other than that would be unrighteous. And so, as I said, the issue is our response. How are you responding to it? It says in James 1.22 to be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourself. See, if you're just a hearer of the word and not a doer, you're self-deceived. And in the context of that, you're deceived thinking you're a Christian when you're not. The way to salvation is through Christ and Christ alone. It's faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. It's the scripture alone that affirms this, all for the glory of God alone. Jesus said it this way, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily And follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Are you willing to lose your life for Christ? For the sake of Christ? Because see, if you're not, you can't be saved. You have to be willing to give up your life. When he says, take up your cross daily, the apostles knew exactly what he was talking about. Because during their day, the Roman general Vaparius, Vaparius, Vasparus, however you say his name, anyway, he crucified 2,000 Jews and he lined them along the streets. And so Jesus is talking about taking up your cross. They knew exactly what he meant. 
The cross is your instrument of death. What's the alternative? What's the alternative if you reject Christ? The alternative is hell. The alternative is an eternity in hell. Forever. Never, never being able to be released from that judgment. So if you're here this morning, you've never given your life to Jesus Christ. We'll call you to do it right now. The Bible says call upon Him. I'm not going to tell you what to say, but I'll tell you this. Whatever you say has to include recognizing your sin and recognizing the Lord Jesus Christ who is Lord, who is God. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, Kurios, Lord, Master. And you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. You believe in the resurrection of Jesus. He says you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and with the mouth he confesses. You confess what you believe. Your heart believes. If I believe in my heart that Jesus Christ is God, if I believe in my heart that that He rose from the dead on the third day, if I believe in my heart that His sacrifice on the cross was an atonement for my sin, if I believe that His Word teaches that I am a wretched, sinful man under the judgment of God, and I call upon Him, it says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so it becomes a, a trust issue. I stop trusting myself and I start trusting Him. And I trust Him alone. Him alone to deal with my sin. I can't deal with it myself. I can't forgive my sin. I can't pay for my sin. You see, that's what hell is. It's a physical place where all those who rejected Christ will spend forever, forever paying the penalty of their sin. And the reason why it's forever and there is no end because you cannot do anything to save yourself and to offer up an acceptable sacrifice to God is only through Christ. Only through Christ. Christ alone no other name given among, among men whereby we must be saved. In the name of Jesus, He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through Him. So this morning, if you have never embraced Him, call upon Him now. Let's pray. We thank You, Heavenly Father, for Your Word. We thank You for what we've looked at today. Thank You for what we've studied And I pray with all my heart, Heavenly Father, that every person in here embraces this. Every person in here embraces your word and recognizes your authority and recognizes your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, that everyone surrenders to him.
Lord, thank you for what you've shown us today. Please save somebody today, we pray.